From New York City, welcome to the OpenFin MVP podcast. I'm your host, Chuck Dorr. Backwards compatibility can be so empowering and it can also be so devastating. Whenever I think about backwards compatibility, I'm reminded of that famous story where I think it was Windows 2000. They actually ended up recreating a bug that SimCity relied on so that they wouldn't, you know, kind of break compatibility with a bunch of, of old software. That was Adam Wolf, VP of Engineering at Robinhood. Robinhood is on a mission to bring investing to everyone and is pioneering modern, commission-free investing. Adam joins me to talk about his move into fintech, engineering leadership, and backwards compatibility. Welcome, Adam. Great to be here. Thanks, Chuck. Fantastic. So can you maybe talk a little bit about how you found your way into fintech from Facebook? Yeah, sure. Actually, you know, that story involves OpenFin and React. But I'll rewind for a little bit because it sure is a circuitous journey. You know, I was always interested in like uh, visual experiences with the computer starting in college. And I joined a couple game companies when I moved out to the Bay Area. But eventually I joined this company called Laszlo Systems. And we were making a programming language that would allow you to build rich user interfaces, rich internet applications, we called them in this XML and JavaScript programming language that we called LZX. And that was, you know, kind of when I switched from being more of like a designer and a user to more of a real software engineer. And I I loved Laszlo. I had a ton of fun there. Eventually, I left and founded a startup called ShareGrove. And we were working on group messaging. You know, I think like a lot of people, we saw that email had limitations and SMS and MMS were coming along, but weren't all the way there. I like to think we were on the same path that WhatsApp was on, although we didn't get nearly as far down it. We ended (laughs) up being acquired by Facebook in 2010. And I spent eight years at Facebook and I had a great time there. You know, because I was working on messaging, when I joined Facebook, I joined the team working on chat. And we did this project to rewrite chat using this architecture that later we called Flux. And the idea was pretty simple. It was that we wanted the data to flow through our application in one direction rather than all of this message passing and binding that was happening in in modern MVC apps at the time. And this project turned out to be really successful. We managed to eliminate a bunch of bugs in chat and add a bunch of features. And eventually we connected with a group of people who were working on the ads product at Facebook. And the combination of these two teams and all of these ideas is ultimately what produced React. And for sort of the last five and a half years I spent at Facebook, I was responsible for this team that we call the product infrastructure team. React was the most well-known project from this group, but eventually the folks who worked on GraphQL joined this group. React Native came from this team, a bunch of mobile frameworks and technologies. So that was a really exciting, really fun time. And this was actually when I was introduced to the world of finance as one of the first FinJS conferences. I was a presenter and, you know, I made contact with OpenFin because I think you were seeing a bunch of people adopting React and transitioning from these installed Windows software installations to things that were delivered into the web browser or into Electron. 
And that that was really interesting and an eye-opening, a whole language and set of people I didn't really know or understand at the time. I don't know even know if I understand it that well now. But <laughs> you know, that kind of was actually like the beginning of my interest in sort of all of the software and the engineering that goes into finance. Eventually I left Facebook in 2018 and joined Robinhood as VP of engineering. Now I'm responsible for the infrastructure teams at Robinhood. So it's been a really exciting journey and, and super interesting. I'm always excited to hear when we're dragging people or OpenFit's helping drag people from you know more consumer technology focused areas into into the deep dark world of uh, of finance. You know, we were actually introduced first in 2014. And you did that FinJS talk in 2016, like real early days of what FinJS was becoming and, and really has become a great conference series. Granted, it's on hold now, and it's one of the reasons why we have the Open Fin MVP podcast. And so we're super excited to have you, you know, on here and, and sort of talking about this journey. So like, you know, in that move from consumer-focused technology, Facebook, world to Robinhood. Can you talk about some of the, you know, differences that you've had to, you know, had to consume there? Yeah, absolutely. You know, when I joined Robinhood, I I must admit I kind of underestimated how different it would be. You know, you walk into Robinhood when our office was open and you see a lot of the things you'd see at any typical Silicon Valley company, you know, the micro kitchen and the open floor plan and the people hanging out in the beautiful courtyard. And a lot of the people at Robinhood came from companies like Facebook, Google, Uber, Airbnb. So I think what I failed to recognize before I joined, what I just didn't know, was that the requirements for financial technologies are so stringent with respect to quality and availability. I mean, of course, when you reflect on it, I think it makes sense. But the way that Silicon Valley engineering has evolved over the last 10 years is that I think we've, like everyone who's working on software, started to sacrifice quality and consistency for speed. And this is true of, you know, like a company I really admire, for instance, Apple. I think, you know, for a long time, their software was just perfect, you know, I thought, when they released it. And now I see them moving faster and making mistakes. And, you know, I don't know, like iPhoto is always like syncing or backing up. <laughs> and, you know, I, I think... Everyone has been pushed by companies like Facebook to, to move much faster. And if you think about it, like none of us thought you could talk to your computer and it would know what you meant, you know, 10 years ago. That, that has happened so quickly. And it couldn't have happened if we didn't adopt this like really fast release process and sort of this willingness to experiment. But that comes at a cost. It comes at a cost of quality and reliability, I think. And I would say that the project at Robinhood is to try to take some of these new techniques for moving quickly as a software engineering team, empowering engineers to make changes, releasing these changes as quickly as we can, but do it in a way that we never expose users to bugs, which is something that, you know, right now, that is not something that the process optimizes for. So I would say that's the whole project at Robinhood. And it's, it's very interesting and, and quite challenging. The OpenFin tagline is actually, you know, borrowed a little bit from your former employer. We say move fast to break nothing. Yeah, yeah. And I think, you know, that it's definitely a challenge to try and deliver that. And I, I guess when you think about in the, in the Robinhood world, I would imagine that, you know, taking engineers who are used to 
you know, the, the more Facebook move fast model, and then having them work in an environment where you're producing consumer facing financial technology, right, engineering leadership to try and, you know, get people to continue to work efficiently, but then also, you know, meet all of the requirements. I've got to imagine that that's got to be a big job for you. Yeah, it's, you know, it's funny because it's subtly different. And I think the one thing I want to be clear is like every engineer at Robinhood understands the responsibility we have. And I think it's not hard to communicate what the expectations are. And, and I think, you know, we all take this super seriously. But let me just give an example of how product development is different. You know, so at, Robin, at, at Facebook, excuse me, you could have an idea for a feature, implement it and ship it all the way to users often, you know, this was in the early days, without really encountering any friction at all. And if it was a good feature and you could show that it moved metrics in the right direction, there was no reason not to ship it. You know, at Robinhood, every feature, even some of our experiments, you know, where we're trying to increase engagement or make something easier, sometimes these changes require, you know, a new legal basis or compliance approval. There's just much more groundwork that has to happen before we can do or change anything at Robinhood. And that really inflects the whole way that engineering works. You know, it means that it's all much more collaborative. The role of the PM is much more prominent because you need someone to tie all these pieces together. It means that you really can't stall your product development pipeline. You have to get it right. You know, you can't jam too many features through. That's a problem. But if you starve it, then you end up in this place where it's like, hey, we don't have anything that's really ready to go for implementation. So that is, you know, that's a very different experience. And it was new to me, you know, and, and actually uh, I can say for sure, one thing that I've realized only recently is that part of my role at Robinhood has to be to say no to some of the things that we want to do just because we don't have the capacity to do them and, and trying to do too many things we've seen that can put strain on the engineering team. So no being a leadership quality that you, you really need to espouse when you're keeping the team focused and keeping, keeping people moving in the same direction. Yes. And I'll add that, you know, at, at Facebook, I never said no to anything. I didn't have to because there was the engineers were self-regulating pretty much. They would do as much as they could do and no more. You know, now what happens is like user research, design, legal, compliance, they get something ready to go and they're like, okay, engineering, go implement this feature. And we don't have, we don't have the capacity to do it. That's a bad place to be in. So kind of getting better at predicting what our capacity will be and, and working with the other teams to make sure that our development slate is right-sized, that is a new skill that I've had to learn for sure. And I hate applying stop energy. You know, I, what I really like yeah. is this super creative, you know, yeah, of course, let's build everything. I really want to. So it's kind of playing against my type a little bit to, to have to interject myself in that way. Now, acknowledging that we're in a, in a strange place right now in the world with COVID and, and all the other things that are going on, as the team has gone remote or increasingly remote, you know, are those challenges harder? What have you had to do differently to, to make all this stuff work well? We're still figuring that out. I'm not sure, I would say. I think, you know, we have some pretty crude metrics for engineering productivity, things like diffs and releases per engineer. Those metrics have been surprisingly stable, whether we're in the office or not. So I think a lot of things is business as usual. I would say the biggest things that have changed are more about style, you know, where like working via Slack or working via Docs is sort of better than spending more time in meetings. But 
I wish I could say I spend a lot less time in meetings now, but that's not even true. I'm, I'm pretty much back to back most days. So I think the other shoe is yet to drop on remote work and exactly what will happen there. But one thing I can say for sure is like, it's not worse. You know, it, it, it's it's better in some ways and worse in others, but it's not uniformly worse. Yeah, I can, I can echo your sentiment there. I mean, my meeting load has definitely not gone down. It's gone up. The amount of collaboration that we do document-based and, you know, the asynchronous decision-making investment that we've made, you know, that stuff is also happening. So it feels like it's two steps forward, two steps back. We're kind (laughs) of in a similar place. And we did the same thing. We actually, you know, we've been looking at some metrics on productivity before and after going to fully remote. And we've actually had some, you know, we've had a team that's, that's actually always been remote. And the thing that it's telling us is that things are largely the same, despite how, you know, despite that they feel a little different. Mm-hmm. And one of the challenges, I think, you know, as we start to look at these metrics, right, is that when you when you measure things, sometimes that starts to change, you know, how those metrics are, are being treated by the teams. You know, once you start managing against a metric, people will start achieving whatever it is that you're trying to do with that. Do, do you see that happening with you? Oh, yes, absolutely. Look, I can give a great example here. So when we have a production incident at Robinhood, we call it a SEV. Obviously, our goal is to have no SEVs. We never want to have a production incident. And, and when we do, we want it to be the smallest kind of SEV, which is a SEV3. And we want to have none of the worst kind of SEVs, which is a SEV0. So how do you manage that? You know, I think first thing you do is you tell everybody like, no SEVs, you know, and, and, and if you can think of a project to do that will help us avoid or eliminate SEVs, do that project. That should be at the top of your list. Now, one thing that's super challenging about quality is that no one really knows exactly what to do to get quality. So, you know, this is something that you have to, to figure out. And, and at Robinhood, we really rely on this principle of Kaizen, which is this idea of continuous improvement to try to uh, improve our quality and the quality of our engineering process at all times. But we can go back for that. Just responding to your metrics question, you know, one way you can think about your tolerance for error and production issues is with a, a budget. So Google, I think, has this idea of error budgets. And, and pretty much what happens is like, if a team exhausts its error budget, it's prevented from building new features. It has to go completely into like building safety and reliability features. Now, that's, you know, a pretty interesting way to manage a team. And I, I like the idea that the recognition that teams really want to implement features and telling them that they can't and the management being the ones who kind of intervene and say, stop building new things and focus on quality. I really like that dynamic. Sometimes it feels too much like it's the leadership and the management that's pushing for new features and the teams that are pushing back and saying like, no, we need to invest here. So I really like that dynamic. But error budgets have a problem too, because there's this flip side of them where you think of them as like, well, we can afford to have this many errors, you know, and and you almost think of it as like something that you spend, which is really not what you want. So metrics always are this double-edged sword where they tell part of the story. I really relate to that. And, you know, not only that, but like there's so many times in my career have I realized that something that we were measuring, you know, not SEVs, those are, those are pretty evident and, and countable, but other important metrics, things around engagement or something like that, you, you realize later that you were measuring these all wrong and basically every decision you've made for the last however long was compromised by the fact that you are, you know, your instruments were miscalibrated. That, that's one of the worst feelings. Yeah, I was actually I was I was listening to you 
you were on the Coding Sands podcast maybe last week or earlier this week talking about anti-fragility, you know, black swan events and how do you how do you plan for that stuff? But, you know, I think towards the second half, you got talking about release velocity as a metric that's a good metric to measure a team on. Maybe talk a little bit about that. I, it's something that really resonated with me. Sure, I'd love to. What I tell engineering managers is if you don't know what else to do, optimize your release velocity and everything else will flow from that. Because if, if you think about it, doing a new release means that you have confidence in the code that you're writing. And not doing a release means that you're blocked from doing that for some reason and removing those blockers will make your team better. So I would say if you can optimize your release velocity and you can measure, you know, you have to know how that new release is performing or you might be going in totally the wrong direction. So that's an important caveat. But those two things together, that is the essence of anti-fragility because it means that you can figure out where you are on the convex payoff curve of making changes to your system. And the dumbest way to think about this is like you put everything in production fast and you revert the bad changes. And eventually you start like ratcheting your way up that convex payoff curve. And, you know, this is a point that Mr. Talib makes in his book, which is that this is part of the reason why technology has progressed so quickly over the last 10 to 20 years, especially because we've harnessed the power of frequent change and measurement. And that just allows you to climb this ladder. Yeah, those kinds of step changes, right, that we've experienced lately with technology, right, with, you know, really the, the web, with mobile apps, you know, the, the pace of innovation really has been, it's been almost blinding, right, participating in this. And, you know, when we, when we think about how do we keep OpenFin moving forward, one of our big things around move fast, break nothing, like one of the ways that that translates into what we do on a day-to-day basis is breaking changes for us, for our APIs, for our customers. There's something that, that are avoided at nearly all costs, right? We don't have the ability to really deprecate things. We don't really have the ability, you know, to, to step away from functionality that, say, a global bank is using in their customer-facing portal, Right. When we invest in that backwards compatibility, you know, it's something that's actually empowering us to release faster. Do you have some thoughts around backwards compatibility and, you know, sort of how, how that factors into how we, you know, how we actually drive innovation? Yeah, such an interesting topic and so multidimensional. I yeah. think, you know, backwards compatibility can be so empowering and it can also be so devastating. Whenever I think about backwards compatibility, I'm Reminded of that famous story where uh, I think it was Windows 2000, they actually ended up recreating a bug that SimCity relied on so that they wouldn't, you know, kind of break compatibility with a bunch of, of old software. So, you know, I think you can get trapped by backwards compatibility, but I also think it's really important. And I actually, you know, this ties to like a technical belief I have, which is in shared resources for engineering teams. And best example of this, I I would say, is having a shared code repository. So like a lot of modern firms, Robinhood has a microservice architecture. And up until recently, most of these services, not only were they released and deployed independently, but they were also in their own GitHub repositories. And what this means is that like when you want to share code or, you know, when you want to change your API, if you're a microservice, you don't really know what it's going to do to everybody else. 
And you know, you can just kind of go ahead and ship this change. And eventually you can say, hey, I'm deprecating this API. You have a month to figure out what to do. And I think this actually creates a bunch of false economy and it puts the onus for migrating on the in the wrong place. I think if I'm going to change my API, I should feel the pain that that causes. And what I love about a modern repo is that, you know, even if you have separate release vehicles for every service, if you're going to go change your API and the way that people call you, you are going to be the one when you introduce this breaking change to go and refactor everything that calls you. And this was something I saw play out really well at Facebook, where when you decided on your architecture change and your new API, you're like 15% done. The super hard part is migrating everyone to that API. So I think we can use technology to actually make sure that the incentives line up properly. I love what you're doing with OpenFin and you know never really breaking anything. That is just the worst feeling when you look at a new release and you're like, oh gosh, you know, I, you're, you sort of, you want some new feature, you know, and you think this will be easy. And then you look at the release notes and you're like, damn it, I have to migrate all these call sites. That's super painful and, and something that, you know, it, it puts, again, it puts the emphasis in the wrong place. Yeah, that is so true. And, and having the emphasis in the wrong place just means that, you know, we're not really focused on the things that are are mattering, right? And, you know, when you've got things sitting between you and delivering functionality to your users, it can very much be a hindrance on the progress. But again, if you're constantly asking them to, you know, refactor and, and upgrade, then their ability to move along with you quickly is really compromised. Yeah. You know, at, at Robinhood... We- I've already mentioned it once. We talk a lot about this principle called Kaizen, which is uh, this Japanese term for continuous improvement. And it ties into this whole revolution in auto manufacturing that happened in the 50s and the lean manufacturing, uh, which I think is fascinating. And a bunch of us manager types, at, especially at Robinhood, are like, love to geek out on this. There's a concept that comes with Kaizen called Muda. And Muda is defined really precisely as anything that doesn't deliver value to the customer. So through some lenses, that would include things like tests, you know, things that we think of as super necessary or employee performance reviews. You know, these are all Muda. And Kaizen goes further and says there are two types of Muda, necessary and unnecessary Muda. But so much of the work we do, especially to like adapt from one API to another, that is Muda. And, you know, Muda is really it will overwhelm you if you don't manage it. Yeah. And hearing you talk about the Kaizen as a concept, right, it, it actually brings me back to some sort of engineering leadership stuff and, you know, team structure things around people using agile and people using these frameworks, you know, sometimes almost blindly. And it doesn't sound like you guys are applying Kaizen as a, as a cult-like thing, how do you differentiate as you're as you're applying that between hey th- this is a this is a naturally good idea that is being reinforced by this framework we have for decision making versus hey we're doing this because it's one of the items on the checklist totally I, you see this all the time especially at a fast growing firm right you sort of introduce some idea and it seems like a good idea to everybody and then 6 months later you turn around and this idea is repeated to you not as like this subtle insight into how teams work but as like some sort of dictum of like, hey, we always, you know, mark our tasks with a red label if they're going to be done on a Tuesday. And, you know, it's like, how did this happen? You know, so things quickly turn from like insight into religion, especially at a fast growing company where that rely on like this kind of mythological or like kind of legendary transmission. So I think 
as a leader, the best thing to do is to encourage debate and to make sure that people don't adopt things just because you tell them to. So whenever I present, for instance, the ideas, some of the ideas in Kaizen, I present it to stimulate discussion and thought and not to say, do this. An example here is that uh, Robinhood is undergoing this company-wide transition to a shared workflow management tool, Jira. And, you know, nobody really loves Jira. Sorry to any <laughs> folks who work at Atlassian out there, but uh, I think, you know, maybe that's not a surprise to you. But, you know, it's probably the best option out there. And I think the value of having shared tooling is really high. But the thing that we've realized is that getting people to adopt Jira is partially about getting the field permissions right and, you know, getting the like team structure and what's a story versus what's an epic and all that kind of stuff. But much more of it is about teaching everybody how to manage a software project. And that's actually, you know, that's something that I don't think we've really revisited since Agile. And Agile, you know, one thing that's really interesting to me about Agile is that that was actually that came out of this practice of like contract software development, where your goal is to keep your customer happy. And the customer is like very, it's a real customer. It's someone who's like paying you every couple weeks for your time. And, you know, now we talk about customers in terms of like an internal business stakeholder or maybe the end user, but it's a very different kind of customer. And I think, you know, I don't know that we've adapted all of the ideas and all of the practices of Agile to really recognize that most teams right now are developing software for an end user, and there's no one paying them for just completing a sprint or meeting a milestone. That's some really interesting insight. I, you know, how the processes and how the the structure of how we're organizing ourselves is designed to meet a customer need or was designed to meet a particular type of customer need, right? But then as the world has shifted a little bit and, you know, we are, again, like you're saying, delivering directly to the end user, you know, we've got to think about how, you know, how that should change how we work, right? Absolutely. You know, I, I keep going back in my mind, you know, thinking about how different the Facebook world is, you know, as described, you know, versus what, what we experience in capital markets finance, what you experience in consumer facing finance. And I'm always struggling to try and say, like, how do we how do we keep the process as much like the Facebook process as possible and really, you know, sort of layer in our compliance and regulatory stuff at the tail end? Don't let don't let the compliance and the regulation, you know, force our sprints to be twice as long as they maybe should be, you know, but how do we run as efficiently as possible and then consume the other requirements versus, you know, like I said, sort of relaxing into the timelines that are mandated? Yeah. Well, let me tell you how I'm thinking about this. I love this topic. You know, first thing I'll say is like, the easiest way to avoid risk is to not change anything. And I think that's like the biggest danger for a finance firm, whether you're consumer or capital markets facing is it's hard to tell the difference between, you know, not breaking things and, and taking sensible risks in order to move forward versus just not doing anything. And that's one of my big fears with like things like error budgets and stuff is like, hey, one way to do that is to just not have any diffs in your release. I really don't want that. And, you know, one thing I did learn at Facebook and one thing I take from Facebook is a relentless investment in tooling. So, you know, when people would come visit me at Facebook, I would always point out these big touchscreen video systems on the walls where you could quickly look up anyone who worked at Facebook and it would show you where their desk was. And 
This was this like bespoke React app running on custom hardware that was maintained by an internal team of real software engineers that, you know, they could have been working on the product, but they were working on this thing. And I think that just showed that was like a visible demonstration of how important it is for people to be able to connect with each other, you know, especially in in Meet World when you make everyone come to an office. Yeah, yeah. But my take on this for, for Robinhood and for financial firms is to invest really heavily in the tooling around compliance and risk. And I think that when you look at the state of the art here, it's kind of pathetic. Like there's actually a bunch of different tools that all basically do some flavor of what Jira does. And very little of like, hey, we're going to write a rule. And then, you know, compliance should not be something that you do every three months as a backward looking activity to audit, you know, what happened. Audit should be continuous, ideally done by software. We have this dream of even using like kind of software verification techniques to prove that we are compliant. So, you know, I think it's a real mistake to think of compliance as drag or overhang. I think of compliance as it's just like a reminder of the responsibility we have to our customers because we are handling money. And, you know, that to a lot of people, it's it's really important to them and, and rightly so. And you can know whether you're right or wrong. That's that's great. And that is a great lens to look at it on. We're we're about at the end here. Are there any little bits that you wanted to talk about, you know, stuff that's coming down the pipe for Robin Hood, stuff that's on your plate that that you think our our listeners would care about here? Yeah, absolutely. I can't help but just bump uh, Robinhood employment. So if you're listening to this podcast, any of this sounds interesting to you, I really encourage you to check out careers.robinhood.com. We are hiring in virtually every area. If you don't see a role that looks like it would fit, that doesn't mean we don't necessarily have it. It probably just means we haven't posted it yet. So I'd love to hear from you. You can reach out to me on Twitter or LinkedIn, or you can apply directly on our careers page. There's so much we're doing at Robinhood, especially to kind of rethink and push the state of the art when it comes to quality, reliability, software testing, and verification. If these things are interesting to you, I'd love to hear from you. Awesome. Thanks so much, Adam. Thank you. It was great to be here. So I hope you found that as informative as I did. I would like to thank Adam for joining us and you for listening. Join us next time as we speak with innovators and thought leaders in finance and technology on the OpenFin MVP podcast.